This is The Shape of Advice, a new podcast series created by Professional Planner. My name is Matthew Smith, and I'm Head of Retail Content at Conexus Financial and Editor of Professional Planner. This series is a conversational-style exploration of the advice landscape that draws on the knowledge and insights of industry thought leaders, experts, and practitioners who are forging ahead with new partnerships, augmenting business models, and adapting to new technologies. Please visit professionalplanner.com au or get in touch to join the conversation. And now, please enjoy this episode. We're joined today by Matt Walker, Chief Commercial Officer at Premium, and Simon Hoyle, Head of Market Insight at Core Data. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Good afternoon. Hi, Matt. Great to have you both here for this episode of The Shape of Advice, and this one's called Reimagining the Value Chain. Matt, I wouldn't mind just inviting you to share with the listeners a little bit about yourself, how you came to be at Premium, and a little bit about your own personal history and uh, how that relates to how you've seen the value chain uh, change in, in advice uh, over the years. Sure, Matt. Uh, well, I've spent uh, the last 30 years in the industry with uh, experience in all aspects of the value chain. Uh, the first decade of that was um, in the mid to late 1980s, which was really the early pioneering days of financial advice. I uh, started out as a financial advisor, um, then to progress to be one of three partners in a my own AFSL business uh, called Financial Focus, where we recruited around 50 or so financial advisors. Um, that business was then sold a few years down the track to a, what became one of the largest advice dealer groups in Australia called Advisor Investment Services. In those days, uh, it was very different to what we see today. Interest rates were double digits, and it was more about selling growth products like uh, unit trusts and investment bonds to reduce tax and have a hedge against high inflation of those days. Uh, there were no fee-for-service or even recurring trail commissions in those days. It was very much about upfront commissions and product selling rather than comprehensive advice and regular reviews. Um, the second decade, I guess, I was running and building one of the early investment platforms in the Australian industry, Navigator. Around that time, the other main one was Asgard, which people would be familiar with. And then the last decade, I've been involved in building investment platform and managed account solutions, firstly for Centrepoint Alliance, which then led me to Premium, where I'm responsible for sales, product and marketing, and our integrated managed accounts platform. Yeah, great. And over that time, the industry has, you know, absolutely morphed. How would you, just at a top level, I know we're going to get into this uh, in a little bit more detail during the conversation, but at a top level, just give us a sense for those movements, you know, in the value chain and just describe what the value chain means to you. Yeah, well, it's changed and evolved a lot over the last uh, 30 years, albeit some may say it uh, too slow from a consumer perspective. Mm. Platforms were probably the really the turning point um, in the early 1990s, because they enabled advisors to outsource the admin component. So we saw product uh, charges to investors started to become unbundled into an ongoing admin component and wholesale MERs on managed funds. 
and advisors started to be paid trial commissions by the platforms out of the admin fee. That later sort of progressed to advisors dialing up advisor service fees as a percentage of assets. So there became less focus on those upfront fees and more on recurring advisor revenue, advisor practice profits, and greater transparency for investors. I guess the other key turning point we saw later on um, in the evolution in the late 2000s is when we experienced the GFC, which uh, I guess unveiled a period of poor performance outcomes for and consumers questioning the value of advice. And that sort of led to the FOFA changes in 2013, which were designed to sort of remove real or perceived conflicts and move the industry more to being advice-driven than product-driven. Um, FOFA really became almost the catalyst for where we are today, with many progressive advice firms having moved to ongoing fees for service. Um, that's certainly been beneficial for those firms during this COVID period with all the market volatility. I guess they did that in conjunction with outsourcing as much of their back office as possible to reduce costs and increase profitability. It's also, FOFA's been the uh, catalyst for things like the growth and evolution of managed accounts as a major industry trend because they not only enable to outsource investment selection and reduce admin, but importantly have stripped out some of the inherent cost layers in things like managed funds to bring the overall cost of the value chain down to the investor. Now, Simon, you're, uh, you and I have worked together on a, f- a few projects and listeners um, listening to this series will, will also will have been introduced to you on the opening episode. But you come from a kind of unique background. You're in the market always doing surveys and, uh, and using data to kind of understand where things are heading. Give us a bit of background on, on how you're seeing the, the, the evolution of the value chain. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, I think Matt has actually summed it up pretty well. This this uh this reimagining or realignment of the value chain is something that has been going on f- for quite a long time. Well, not f- forget that the person who drives this entire chain is is the client, it's the consumer. Uh, they fund the operations of every every link in the wealth management value chain, and it's always been that way. It's just that where the ticket has been clipped. Uh, has changed over time. Who's clipping it and how much of a clip they're taking on, on the way through. Um, essentially, what we've seen is is um, is a fight for for the margin, if you like, in in managing an individual's wealth. Um, and we saw saw it. Uh, we've seen it play out over time. It, it's you know a good example of it was that that um, uh, 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 fund managers' uh, margins have been squeezed. As more and more of the role, the traditional activities of the fund manager were taken on by by other parties. They mm. were taken on by by platforms, for example, um, who coveted the the margin that the investment managers were enjoying on on their activities. So, plat appeared with an administration service and started to margin on on that. Um, and it's happening again mm. um, uh, right now. Uh, and, and it looks like it's the, the the investment manager that's getting squeezed again as. An increasing number of, of advisors are realizing that they can take on some of the investment management role, some of the investment management functions themselves, uh, do it uh, for a, a bunch of different reasons, which we'll get to uh, through this conversation, I, I would think. Uh, but enjoy some of the margin that comes from those sorts, those sorts of activities. Yeah. 
the the cost of advice though um, has been driven up in recent times. There's absolutely no doubt about that. It's been driven up by, amongst other things, an increased compliance and regulatory burden on the advisor. Um, so you've got uh, increased pressures at the same time that the value chain is being made, um, and you're, you're seeing, uh, it, it, in a broad sense, uh, each of the parties in the links in the value chain starting to re- recognise that they can only be paid for the services that they actually provide. And along with that, they can only get paid if they provide a service. So there's no sitting there clipping the ticket and generating revenue for not providing a service in, in return. You've got licensees who have been um, uh, subsidised in, in various ways through the value chain, now recognising that those subsidies are being removed. And they're turning to the advisors and they're saying, well, it costs us X to serve you. You're going to pay us a fair price to cover our costs. And at the same time, advisors are having to turn to their clients and say, well, it costs us a certain amount to provide compliant, high-quality service and advice to you. So to charge you a fair fee for the services that we provide to, to the consumer. Um, so the trick we're seeing is is how to understand how those links in the chain are now starting to relate to each other, how links in the chain are taking margin where they're earning it from, uh, but under this sort of overarching view that it's ultimately the consumer that pays for all of this and you don't want to drive costs up too much and price advice out of the reach of the uh, of the consumer. Yeah, it seems like part of what you're saying there is I'm interested in that idea about some of the dare I say it, uh, rent-seeking of the past, be be, ex- be exposed in this environment where uh, margins are really, really coveted. And, and yeah, to be, to be fair, and to, to your point, the last thing anyone wants to do is, is be pricing advice um, for consumers any further out of the equation. Spot on. And that rent-seeking has been exposed for exactly what it is, Matt. You've, you've hit the nail mm. on the head there. Uh, and it's, it's now beholden upon each service provider to justify the fee that they are getting for yeah. the service that they are providing. Because I want to pick up on that investment management margin and uh, I'll go to Matt in a second, but just before uh, we move on from kind of the opening remarks, interested in where do you think there are f- further lazy margins still in the process, still needed to be worked out? Well, I think they're actually getting getting sharper, Matt. Um, I, I think that all parties in the value chain are under increasing pressure. Margins are actually under pressure right through the chain. So the question rather than, you know, can we take take margin out is can we take cost out of the can we take cost out of the value chain? Um, so can we make make sure that services can be provided at a reasonable cost to ultimately to the consumer and can we still earn a decent living off the provision of those services? If you look across the value chain, there are areas I I, I don't think there's an area that won't be affected or isn't being affected by the introduction of technology. Uh, you know, reg tech, fintech to drive down costs and protect margins in in some ways. Um, maybe you know that there are moves that that could be made to cut compliance and the regulatory burden on advisors and take some cost out of the uh, the advice delivery uh, in, in that respect. Um, but you know, uh, margins. I mean, there's nobody. <laughs> I don't think there's many players across the industry who who are you know st- still in big fat lazy margins anymore they're all working pretty hard for their money yeah and i don't think the vice industry is any different i mean look at the broader economy right i mean we've reached a point where 
you know, economic growth is going to be really, really hard to come by in the next few years. And certainly wage growth isn't exactly ticking up. If anything, you know, could be stagnant. And um, all across, you know, various industries, not just advice, people are looking to for technology to, you know, tighten some of the aspects to to our our businesses so then we can um can make them more efficient perhaps that's just what's happening in advice as well I, I just wanted to pick up your on your point and maybe throw it to matt you know on the investment manager margin that seems to be an area where platforms have been successful in managing to get a better deal and it seems to be the investment managers that are being squeezed is that what you're seeing as well yeah, to an extent, uh, I think that's right because uh, if we look at the primary implementation vehicles, as you mentioned, being um, platforms that advisors are using, things like the advent of managed accounts and ETFs, for example, have reduced investment management costs, say, relative to managed funds that they've used in the, in the past. I think there's also been the fact that there's been greater percentage of use of things like that uh, passive strategies these days by advisors as well, which okay. has also brought the cost down to the investor. Mm. Um, but it's not just investment side. I think even on the platform side, competition in recent years amongst modern platforms with more scalable technology that is referred to by Simon has significantly reduced ongoing platform admin fees as well in the value chain. If you look at it now, I think admin fees are becoming a lot more commoditized. You know, uh, now you're looking at sort of around about starting the sort of the mid-30s in terms of basis points for small investor accounts, and uh, but with capping, once they get to around, uh, you know, more of a million dollars and that, that can bring the cost down to sort of below 20 basis points um, or less. And if you add in sort of other mechanisms that platforms have used on pricing like family account aggregation to reduce fees and things like that, I think um, mm-hmm. that's also helping in reducing the overall cost of investors. Yeah. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Premium, the integrated managed accounts platform. Premium provides the ideal functionality and flexibility for all advice businesses to deliver an exceptional wealth management experience. Visit premium.com to find out more. Are there ways where the platform or admin admin service providers are kind of hanging on to some of these margins at, at all? Matt, come on. Yeah, yeah, that's a fair fair question. I think this is where advisors probably need to dig a little bit deeper in their research. Real, a good example of this is uh, there's a big difference in trading costs on platforms. Okay. So at the moment, they typically range on average somewhere between 5 to 15 basis points, but that's quite a big uh, differential from platform to platform. Um, and there's also a big difference in the approach that platforms uh, use to pass on the benefits of their scale, particularly around um, trading costs. Uh, one example of that is um, is netting of trades, where netting just means if you've got one investor that's uh, buying BHP and another investor who's selling BHP, you might be able to net that trade so they don't pay um, brokerage. Now. There's many different ways platforms deal with that. Some don't offer netting at all. 
Some might offer netting at an investor account level, which doesn't have a big impact. And there are some like us who actually net across the whole platform in terms of the funds under management. So, you know, I think in our example, around about 20% of trades, there's no brokerage cost because of that benefit of the netting of uh, scale netting is passed on to the investor. I think the other area that platforms in some areas are charging a bit too much is um, the administration fees on platform cash uh, that the investors hold. In this low investment environment uh, or low interest rate uh, environment, rather, they should be paying more than RBA, I think, as a minimum, which isn't the case um, for some platforms. Yeah. And are you finding that a lot of advisors are um, doing more in-depth due diligence when they're choosing their platforms and they are beginning to ask these questions? Or do you think that um, tire kicking is still not at the level you think perhaps it could be? Uh, I think it has improved the level of due diligence. I think one of the things that's helped in the last five years has been, I guess, more transparent disclosures in in uh, PDSs and things like yeah. that. But I think um, I think advisors do need to dig uh, deeper than they have in the past because it's not it's not just about the headline administration fee. There are these other fees that um, need to be considered. And just because it's a little bit hard to calculate them, like in trading costs and things like that, um, they still should be doing that analysis to ensure that um, they're getting the right outcome, obviously for their clients, but also in conjunction with getting uh, the right efficiencies they need in their practice to reduce costs of delivery of advice. Yeah, yeah I think Matt makes a really good point there, uh, Matt. That there are there are sort of two two ways advisors and advice firms go into into this into this um, this area. They either go into it defensively, and the idea is to set up a structure and a um, uh, an offer for clients that protects their margin, that allows them to capture some of the margin that was otherwise going to be lost to them or some of the revenue that was going to be lost to them through uh, through the loss of other forms of revenue. Or they go into it with an eye on improving practice efficiency, delivering better investment solutions for clients. And, and it's a bit of a fine line for them because um, obviously they need to to implement the the, the, the service the the issues that Matt has just alluded to but they've got to make a quid out of it as as well it's a service that they're offering and it's reasonable that that they they, they make make some money on on being able to, to offer that service but they don't want to go into it uh, with a you know a transparent sort of revenue protection um, uh, mindset either it's a, it's a bit of a fine line do you think some advisors go into some of these structures with the sole purpose of trying to shave margins off some of their investment manager relationship um, or, you know, and to what extent is that a, an okay strategy? Take on a technology provider because you're able to get a better deal with fund manager. Yeah, I mean, go ahead and do it if you've got the expertise and, and, and the resources to do it properly. Um, but we see in in some cases the implementation of these solutions isn't isn't well thought through. They don't get past that. Hey, we need to protect the the revenue uh, uh, argument. I mean, we've done a little bit of work just just recently, and something like you know, for example, two thirds of the advice practices that we spoke to don't have an external investment committee, and they don't have external resources that they call on for making investment decisions. 
uh, and yet they're offering offering these investment solutions to, to their clients. And you scratch your head and you wonder, well, first of all, how well resourced are you to do that? Where, where's your, your expertise? How well is this thing set up? And, and how well is it actually serving the clients if you're not if you're not calling on on independent uh, input and investment expertise to help you make better better investment decisions. If you're going to take on the role of the investment manager, you've got to take on the role of the investment manager, and that means being properly resourced to do it. You'd see a bit of, bit of that, Matt, um, from where you're sitting. You, you must come across a lot of different advisors implementing a new strategy or juicing up their existing strategy. Uh, I think this probably started um, some years ago with the advent of managed discretionary accounts or for short MDAs. Um, but I think with the regulatory changes to the requirements around those, because they were reasonably easy to set up originally, as well as advisors now needing to outsource as much as possible to keep their costs down, the industry trend has, in recent times has been away from those sort of structures and more to simple structures like um, SMAs, where, you know, which simplifies their lives. Um, at Premium, we actually cater for both and have done for a while. However, the outsourcing and simplicity benefits of SMAs seem to have made them the more sort of go-forward investment solution for, for many firms making that sort of transition to managed accounts. Um, we've seen in some larger firms looking to run their own SMA models on platforms if they could. Um, and in some cases uh, where they have, they're not charging a model portfolio fee, they're just charging for advice. In other cases, we're seeing that um, some are charging a fee on those to offset the costs of having to have things like investment committees and other structures to. Um, run model portfolios. The reality, though, of this is that uh, the due diligence hurdles that these businesses have to reach with platforms and also with super trustees who have quite a high bar to qualify as an investment manager um, are increasing all the time. And so the ability for advice businesses to be able to do both, I suspect, is going to get harder and harder. It's only the ones that have been able to establish um, sort of separate businesses with um, really good external expertise on investment committees and other very robust processes and things like that that have been able to sort of meet those requirements. I think the bottom line is that advice firms can keep the overall value chain costs down by outsourcing as much as possible and also by keeping investment costs down because there's plenty of choices now of different investment managers and different types of strategies from passive to partly active to fully active to ESG options. There's plenty of choice out there for them to consider and the flexibility to determine the overall cost framework. Yeah. How much should advice cost? You know, how much should be devoted to the investment management and how much how much does admin cost? Um can we put a percentage or a cost around this? How much should each parts of the process cost? Yeah, look, I'm a bit biased and Matt might have a different view, but but I, I think that the most valuable link in the wealth management chain is the one that is closest to the consumer, the one that's closest to the client, uh, and that's the advisor. The advisor's in the position of power here 
and uh, is the one that dictates the solution that is ultimately delivered to the consumer, to the client, sets the strategy for the client, provides the guidance and the ongoing uh, ongoing service and ongoing contact. Uh, and so if you're looking at, um, you know, if there's a certain size of, of pie, if you like, that needs to be divided up uh, amongst the, the different players in the, in the value chain, then the lion's share of that, as you say, the lion's share of that pie, that's an, an interesting metaphor, but um, <laughs> that should go to the advisor. The advisor is the, the greatest value adder in the, in the value chain. Uh, and that's where the, the, the greatest, uh, the, 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 that's where the greatest slice of the overall um, uh, margin or the overall payment that the, the client is making to have their, their um, wealth managed. That's where it should go. Now, how it's divided up amongst the other players and indeed how much of it, exactly how much of it goes to, to the advisor is exactly what is being worked out across the value chain right now. Um, as these new structures, as these different ways of doing things are being developed and being implemented and people are working out where their areas of expertise lie, people are working out what resources and what expertise they need to bring in or outsource to, to, to make it work efficiently. All of that stuff is what's being negotiated at the moment between all the different players in, in, the, in the value chain. Um, it's, it's still moving. It's, it's not settled yet. Uh, and we've got the overlay of uh, of technology, which can sort of come in at any moment with a solution or or with something that can can upend uh, the, the the margins and the value chain. So there's that level of uncertainty to deal with as well. But th- this is not a finished story yet. This has got some way to run. Yeah. Look, I, I think the most, and I agree with um, Simon's comments. By the way, I, I do believe uh, the most important element is the advice uh, part and uh, because they are the closest to the client. But it's also the most difficult to quantify if you're looking to sort of come up with an overall cost because the um, the advice portion can vary greatly depending on things like the investor segment that's being advised, the level of service and advice being provided, as well as the client engagement model for each segment. So I guess the advice portion um, really has to have the most potential elasticity at the end of the day. In relation to the implementation of the advice, which includes, say, admin and investment, um, on, uh, I think on custodial platforms, the answer lies somewhere in the region of a total cost for those two of around 50 to 100 basis points um, all rolled up subject to investor account size, choice of investment strategy. Obviously, it's cheaper if you go more passive, more, you know, um, at the higher end if you're going more active. Um, So I think it's in that sort of range before um, trading costs, which, as we outlined earlier, can vary quite a bit. Um, There's been talk of whether flat admin fees um, should be charged by flat platforms at some point in the future. However, on current industry scale, I don't believe that is economic, except for in the non-custodial area. Um, at premium, we, we do charge flat, flat fees for non-custody because it's more commensurate with the cost profile and the services provided. Um, I think we've seen in the industry evidence of low-cost disruptors coming in with a different sort of price proposition. <laughs> But I think in these economic times, we've also seen some of them finding it difficult to sustain that model. So we've seen quite a few 
uh, acquisitions and um, uh, consolidations um, with uh, some of those disruptor type solution. Yeah. What about the future state? I mean, the more we move along, the more important it's going to be for advisors to get their ecosystems right. They're going to need the right research, the right investment managers that uh, do what they say they're going to do. They're going to need the um, the platforms to to come in and and provide a service at the best cost they possibly can, right? And be genuine about that because at the end of the day, it's the advisors who are on the hook for their best interest duty and they're going to be judged according to the new code of ethics. So it's really, really imperative that all parts of the ecosystem can work together and uh, be genuine about that, right? So if we look forward and think, well, that's the world we're heading into, what does, what does the value chain look like in that kind of world? We've got this, this opportunity to become a profession. What, what should the future state value chain look like? Simon, to you, mate. Yeah, so I think that one of the, the big changes, we're already starting to see it happen when we start to look at how advice fees are structured. But the big change that has to sort of roll all the way through is, is getting away from valuing advice based, you know, on a percentage of, of a client's assets. Um, that might be appropriate for other players in the wealth management chain. That might be an appropriate way to value a service or to charge a fee uh, for the provision of what is essentially a, a product. But when you're talking about a service, um, it's a different, I think it's a different proposition. And so part and parcel of this move to professionalism that you mentioned, Matt, is the idea that you charge professional services or you charge a professional fee for the services that you you provide. That decouples the value of the advice from the cost of the investment solution. The investment solution will cost what it costs. Uh, Matt is, is uh, you know, across the... Um, the factors that are driving uh, driving uh, what's going on there, uh, margins and profitability and and what have you of of the different players in the in the value chain there, but advisors have got to start thinking more like professionals and to say my advice is valuable and that's worth x thousands of dollars a year whatever it might be, but it's decoupled from your your worth your 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 financial worth as as a client. Um, that's a, a realignment or, or a change in the in the wealth management chain that is still rolling through and hasn't yet you know has that that wave hasn't quite reached the shore yet. Uh, that's on the way, uh, and then everything else that follows is exactly what Matt has exactly how how Matt has already described it. What are you seeing, Matt? Yeah, look, I think um, bringing it back to what you said about uh, best interest uh, of the client. Often, uh, unfortunately, best interest is interpreted as being um, them recommending the cheapest platform or product or solution for the client, but it's far more than that. It's about um, client needs analysis. It's about the client's tolerance for risk. It's about the advisor developing a strategy and a plan to meet their specific goals and making sure that the advice is likely to put the client in a better position with the client's interest put ahead of their own. That's the key to it. In terms of proving, I guess, the last element, in my mind, the strategy is the most important and then finding the right um, solution after that, you know, getting the advice right, getting the cost of that advice right. The example that I would use is the advisors who use um, 
you know, our platform, for example, depending on client needs, can choose a different type of managed account depending on the type of investor that's there. So, you know, some people may need a simple SMA um, to meet their needs. Some, uh, someone who needs something more bespoke might go for an individually managed account or an MDA. And some who want um, a bit of a mixture might go for a unified managed account if advisors know what they are. And then they can choose from a broad menu of investment managers uh, to deliver the investment strategy um, and, you know, tune that to the uh, client's goals. And again, that could be passive, active, balanced. It could have ESG considerations, whatever. And also taking account of what price they think is appropriate for that package solution that they come up with um, to meet the needs analysis they've done in the first place. I think future regulation is going to have a bit of an impact on this as well. Uh, in 2021, we're going to see um, the product design and distribution obligations come in from um, the regulator, which we experienced something similar in the uh, UK with Mifid too, as we're a global business. And the I guess the overall principle about it is uh, for providers like us and others of platforms and products are going to need to do a lot clearer disclosure about how a particular product or solution is going to meet the specific needs of different investor types, even to the extent where we might have to uh, monitor whether uh, advisors are picking the right things um, in the first place um, to meet those client needs. Hopefully it doesn't quite go to that extent because really that's the domain of the advisor, but that's um, something that's um, potentially mooted. I think ultimately where the value chain ends up um, is further down the path of um, greater transparency of the role of each party um, through greater disclosure you know, different unbundling of the cost structures and some of the things that Simon talked about. Um, but there's also evidence of how solutions are very relevant to client circumstances. I think we're going to see a lot more of that. And I think we're going to see a lot more uh, price economies of scale that uh, providers um, will hopefully pass on as they grow um, and become more transparent. Definitely seeing a lot of that in the, in the industry as well. We're, we're in that phase of consolidation among players. So perhaps that will uh, result in in further economies of scale and, and better pricing as well. Look, it's been an awesome conversation. Thanks so much for your time. Cheers, guys. Pleasure, Matt. Yeah. Thanks, Matt. All the best.